Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Over the weekend, we traveled to the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, a huge and very fun event featuring hundreds of prominent commentators, and we were really happy to take part in it. We recorded two panel discussions there before live Austin crowds, one about the Department of Justice investigations into the former president, and the other previewing the upcoming Supreme Court term. We'll release the Supreme Court episode next week, but today we focus on the DOJ. You might call the discussion, Will They or Won't They? Because it's a detailed look at what's likely happening within the department, which case they might bring against the former president, and all the factors from nitty-gritty prosecutorial details to sweeping questions of political democratic theory that the inquiry entails. It was a great event, and I hope you enjoy. Matt, how do you feel about following Willie Nelson? Um, uh, uh, not good. <laughs> <laughs> Hello again, everyone. Uh, we are back still live in Austin at the Texas Tribune Festival. I'm Harry Littman. We aim in these two episodes to kind of pull back the curtain as best we can on two of the most uh, opaque institutions in government. Uh, one was the Supreme Court, and now... We're going to be talking about the Department of Justice for about an hour. If we can, we'll, we'll take a, a question or two. Um, we have a fantastic panel to discuss basically what does the DOJ have in store for Donald Trump. Um, and let me just introduce them, starting with Katie Benner covers the Department of Justice for the New York Times. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Matt Miller, a partner at Novo and a, a Texas uh, local. He previously served as director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice with Eric Holder. Thanks for having me, Harry. And Charlie Sykes, the editor-in-chief of The Bulwark and the author of How the Right Lost Its Mind. Thank you. All right. Let's start here. So the DOJ has turned up the public heat, the public heat at least, in their... Uh, 1-6 investigation and the Mar-a-Lago investigation in recent weeks. Has the public and many of us misunderstood the department's work, underestimated Garland, or have they been following a plan all along, or did something change? Anybody? I'll start. Um, <laughs> I, so I, I, a couple questions. I think the public and a lot of the legal commentators have underestimated Garland. I think he has very carefully kind of uh, protected his political capital, protected his credibility um, uh, at great criticism, people thinking he needs to speak out more and be more public. Um, and I think that will serve him well should the department bring charges because he's uh, you know, established a baseline of not looking political. That said, in terms of why they suddenly turned up the heat and started, you know, turned the January 6th investigation to a very active focus on Trump and the close people around him, I think it's really hard to know what happened. Um, uh, it, it is very strange that if they thought there was a potential criminal violation, if they thought there was criminal liability, that they waited this long to start subpoenaing those close to Trump and bringing them to the grand jury and looking for documents. My theory all, all along, perhaps wrongly, had been they didn't think they could make a criminal case at, uh, against the former president, and so they weren't going to go down that road and build up public expectation, expectations, put a lot of pressure on themselves only to see them dashed. So I don't know whether they were just, whether they had a change in, in their perception of the case, or as people there will tell you, without saying specifically what's going on with the case, they will tell you, you know, 
all of you on the outside who used to work in, you should know better. You know that there's things that we know that we're doing that you don't know about, and uh, you're criticizing us, saying we're not doing enough. You remember how it was like when you were in the department, people were saying that about you, and you knew they were wrong, but you couldn't say so. So that's, of course, also what you say when you're not doing anything. So, <laughs> so, so it's, it's very hard to know. Um, uh, but that said, I think it's very clear now that they are full steam ahead on the January 6th piece and looking to you know, try and make a case. What you were saying about um, building up public expectation, I think that we can't underestimate how much the January 6th committee has, whether or not the department wanted this, has helped the Justice Department in its own investigative steps because the committee, by holding those hearings, built up public expectation and, and presented evidence to the public that seemed very compelling, showing that the former president was in some ways culpable for the attack on the Capitol and was truly trying to cling to power when he shouldn't have been. And so having that in the ether, I think is helpful if you are Merrick Garland and you are trying to run an investigation that is extremely controversial, never been done before, and everybody knows is going to end in tears for pretty much the entire country, no matter what he decides. So I think that you. So I think that that was really helpful to the department in terms of allowing an expectation to be built without Garland having to do it himself. So I'd be interested in, in getting your your reaction to this. My sense is there was an evolution in Merrick Garland's thinking about this because when he came into office, I think that I mean there's there's two conflicting principles here. You know, number one of you know depoliticizing the Department of Justice and then upholding the rule of law. And initially, I think he seemed very very focused on you know, rebuilding the department, undoing the damage that Bill Barr et cetera had done to the Department of Justice, and as part of that to not have the department perceived as being political in any way whatsoever. But I agree with Katie that, you know, as events have taken place, it's become more and more obvious that, um, you know, the, mo the duty of the Department of Justice is now to uphold democracy. I mean, democracy is too important to be left to lawyers, um, but that's what we have um, <laughs> here at this point. Wow. And, and, I, and, I, and I do think that... Whatever that's the... But... Um, I, I think his remarks um, about a week ago at Ellis Island were um, extremely interesting because he laid out an understanding of this moment in history and what he has to do and the principle at stake that he might have come into office thinking that he, like post-Watergate, that he was going to just, you know, rebuild things. And now I think he realizes that, that the, the risk of not upholding the law, of not establishing these constitutional precedents is, mm -hmm. is much more important. So... Um, I, I do think that there was an underestimation of, of him, but, but perhaps, you know, he, when he came into office, he didn't perceive that this was going to be what his tenure would be like. No, I think that's really right. I think he came in with an assumption that the past is past. Because remember, there was a clamor for criminal prosecution based on a lot of things that had preceded 2020. Um, he doesn't talk much, but when he does, it's really portentous and... He gave that that speech in January 2021, right. was it? Where you know, and if you know Garland, you know that those words were chosen very carefully, and nobody above the law, et cetera. I think people took as a telegraph that no, they were they were looking at this in earnest. But as Matt says, you know, they they generally, and he's a stickler for this, can't speak outside the public filings. In fact, uh, Trump has continually done done them a favor by leading with his chin in ways that they respond in court and we learn more and more. Um, let's go to, I mean, the. I, I'd like to, to pick up on what Katie said and talk a little bit about both January 6th, but also Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, Mar-a-Lago explodes into view August 8th with the search and it's first this document retrieval operation. Now we know clearly, in fact, again, they've said it to the court. They've had to, we have a criminal investigation to pursue. If you're Garland, or just, just as you, what are the relative virtues and uh, downsides of January 6th as opposed to Mar-a-Lago as bases for prosecution? And is there any, I, we, one thing we do know is January 6th would take a lot longer to develop. Is there any reasonable prospect that they actually would do both? Well, I, I mean, I think that they're such incredibly different investigations that it's, it's 
probably wrong to think of them even in the same sentence. I, I, I try to keep them as separate Everyone's as possible. I know. There, they, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see Harry's paper, so I know that he is yeah. separate. Enough. But the, at, at the end of the day, the, the document search case was something that the department was probably taken by surprise. Um, it probably took the department by surprise because you would think that at the end of the day when the National Archives asks for their objects back, people do return them. I mean, we definitely have had people leave office with things they shouldn't have had and they, they do return them. This is not the first time in history this has ever happened. But it was not only the amount of paper, documents, materials, it was the prolonged period um, you know, by which representatives of the former president said they didn't have anything anymore or that they weren't sure what was going on. And then it leads to this raid because now the Justice Department feels that they have been lied to. And so it's, it feels like a very straightforward case. Somebody takes something they shouldn't have, they keep it when they t say they aren't going to, and then they lie to federal authorities about it. And that's what we've seen in the filings. Now that's something that, you know, you can, you can see how that investigation will work and you know that at some point in time, Garland is going to have to say yes or no to charging on one of those statutes. That, again, is so different from what we see with January 6th, which is this sort of complicated mess of investigations. You had the huge investigation into the people who attacked the Capitol, were trying to figure out their motives. Do those motives lead us somewhere? What about other people involved with these plots to keep Trump in power, whether it was the scheme to have fake electors and several swing states ready to say that they had actually voted for Donald Trump when they hadn't? You know, these are all things that the department needs to investigate on their own and then decide if there's even any connection that they can make in a court of law with evidence that's so compelling that it's beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury that Donald Trump directed any of those things. That is such a hard, much harder hurdle, and that is something that will take so much longer. And I think that it's really, for people who are thinking about whether or not Trump will be prosecuted, the documents case is the one to watch. January 6th is, is I think, very, very unclear, and it's very nascent. I, I agree with everything Katie said. I also, Charlie said something, I think, really important a minute ago, that democracy is too important to be left to, to prosecutors. No offense to all the prosecutors. Another way to say that is I think we as a country uh, during the Trump years kept asking prosecutors, whether the Justice Department or others, to bail us out, to bail the country out and somehow take Trump out of the picture in a way that voters hadn't been able to. And it, that is asking a lot of the criminal statutes. It's asking a lot of prosecutors. Um, it wasn't necessarily a problem that they could solve. And that's kind of how I felt about the January 6th investigation. It's clear that Trump you know, violated his oath of office and committed grave acts uh, you know, against the Constitution. Um, whether it's a violation of, crim of a, the criminal statutes, I mean, you can look at the criminal statutes and make a case, but I challenge you to show me anyone that's been prosecuted in our history for anything like what he is alleged to have done. There is no real pr precedent for bringing that type of case. So I do think one of the things Garland was probably feeling, if Trump was out of the picture and wasn't planning to run again, or had he been convicted in his second impeachment and barred from running, Maybe he doesn't take the January 6th investigation as seriously, but I, I suspect he's feeling this weight that, um, that because Trump is an ongoing threat to democracy, maybe we have to be the ones that do something about it. And they would never admit that publicly. They would always say, we only look at the facts and the law. But of course, if you're the attorney general, you have to think of the other consequences. But I think because it's such a hard case, um, uh, and much harder than I think people, people believe, I think the Mar-a-Lago case has been, a, 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 it's almost bailed the Justice Department out because unlike January 6th, any, this is, if you just look at the facts, there are people with much better fact sets who have gone to jail for, for what Trump did. And, and, and a, nobody who hasn't, as best I can tell. It, exactly, and that's the thing. So if at the end of this investigation, you have a former president who mishandled classified information and then obstructed. That's always the important thing. It's always just mishandling classified information. There has to be some other thing. You disclosed it or you obstructed. It's kind of mishandling plus, and he's done that. And you don't bring the case. It's very hard to justify then bringing other cases against low-level workers at the Pentagon and the intelligence community that we see over and over again. So I think it's made probably at the end of this the decision much easier for Garland. So I, I agree with that, but a slightly different point of view. So there, there are 
strikes me that there's two imperatives or maybe three that we're dealing with here. Number one is preventing Donald Trump from returning to power. Number two, holding Donald Trump legally accountable for his, his conduct. And perhaps, and number three, establishing the precedent that no one is above the law, that, um, that ex-presidents, in, in fact, are not immune from prosecution. Now, the Department of Justice cannot directly affect the first, preventing him. The Department of Justice has limited ability to do this. It, it, it can only really do number two and number three. It can hold him accountable. Now, while I completely agree with everything you just said about, you know, go for the airtight, you know, uh, document case, this would, you know, um, I think that realistically, Merrick Garland also has to understand that going small will generate the same political firestorm as going big. There's, there's, not, there's not going to be a, a moderated response, you know, based on, you know, how much they charge him for. So as much as I would love Donald Trump to be nailed on one of these airtight, you know, sort of legal headshot I I issues, you know, uh, where tax issue a la Al, Al, Al Capone. I also think that it's important to, for, for Garland to realize the historic significance of his action, to explain that this is not just a gotcha, that this is, and I apologize to Willie Nelson here, um, this is a big fucking deal. This is the president of the United States. Why does it matter? We're not just dealing with a common grifter who broke the law. We're dealing with a president of the United States who used his power to overturn an election, to incite an insurrection, to put it in that historic context, but also to explain to people why we're doing something so dramatically unprecedented. The small charges may serve the function, and, and again, I'm not disagreeing with you, I just, I'm just thinking this through, you know, may serve the function of holding Trump accountable, but I also think that it's important to make it clear why, you know, why they need to protect the Constitution, because we're now talking about precedents that will affect, I think, the constitutional order for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And, and, I, and I think that has to weigh on their minds as well. So I think yeah. that you're getting it. I mean, we're all sort of circling around something that's really difficult, which is it's, real, it's almost impossible to separate the political from the prosecutorial, which is what Garland came in to do. He said he wants to depoliticize the Department of Justice. But if what you're doing is thinking about criminally charging the leader of a political party in the United States of America, wildly popular leader of a political party in the United States of America, a leader whose, right, whose members will not deviate from, even when they've tried to, as we've read in all sorts of books, including yours, including Mark Leibovich's books, et cetera, that is inherently then a political act. And so what you want is for Merrick Garland to rise to that moment, that political moment, by going big, because it's such a big political question. But at the same time, he's hemmed in by the rules of the Justice Department, which say, no, 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 no we can really only charge on the crimes we can truly prove. And so he cannot do the thing that you want, even though his actions and his task is political in a way that he cannot separate himself from. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. If there is a figure in Washington, D.C. right now who is a tragic figure, like a classically tragic figure, think Shakespeare, think, you know, like, go, go, go further back, think, you know, what, you know, at Oedipus, et cetera. Like, if you think it's he is he is in this situation where he must make a choice. He doesn't get to not make the choice. Yeah. We know he has to, and the choice is going to really. It's not going to resolve the tensions in the country. It's right. going to inflame them, yes. and he, he needs to do it. And he has to say to himself, "Do I try to protect this bigger system and these bigger ideals, or do I?" follow the rule book that I'm given that in no way addresses those bigger ideals. So this is like, exactly. I mean, I, I, like when, when I see Merrick Garland, I don't see, you know, Ed Levy, I don't see, you know, Kennedy. What I see is I see yeah. a, he, a, tra a classically tragic Greek figure. He wanted to be Ed Levy. That's, I mean, that, that, that is, well, that, that is. That was the hope and it, and it hasn't, that is, yeah, but, but it but couldn't I guess, be. And I, I agree with all of that, but. In, in, in some ways, you know, you, you said, you know, rise to the, what, but rise to, you know, to the political role. That's been thrust upon him. He has, he has no choice. He, he's, he's sort of, of stuck there, whatever, whatever he does. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think there are, I mean, there, let's be honest about it, there are real risks here. 
I mean, there are real risks. Risks that uh, Trump will be acquitted, that there will be a hung jury, uh, that Trump will be indicted and yet still nominated. Um, that it, that in fact this will accelerate convicted and still nominated. Is this yeah. will excel. This will accelerate um, the skepticism of the, of the rule of law. I mean, all of those risks against the risk of again establishing the precedent of not charging him, letting him get away with this. You know, the seditious conspiracy, etc. But I, I agree. This is a. This is like uh, Henry the Fourth. But this is beloved but, Sophie's choice. This is exa- not exactly. Like, but yeah, all, yeah. Of the, all of this is yeah. why the Mar-a-Lago case is the yeah. way yeah. out for Garland. Look, I think it, uh, the uh, because now that they've launched this full-scale investigation on January sixth, I don't have any doubt if at the end of it they think they can bring charges, win a conviction, and sustain that conviction on appeal, where you'll have some, you know you will you will have brought some really novel legal charges that will have to withstand scrutiny by a Supreme Court that, forget about the, the right-leaning nature of it, has been skeptical about using the criminal statutes to apply to political behavior, what can be argued as political behavior, in a lot of previous cases. So if they can decide they can overcome all those hurdles, I think they will bring the January 6th case. But I suspect the Mar-a-Lago case is going to be finished a lot sooner than that, and they're going to have an they're going to have a decision on Mar-a-Lago maybe in the next six months. It's not yeah, really that complicated. We did write a story about this in case. the yeah. uh, publication the, called the New York Times. Yeah, let, yeah. Um, <laughs> let me um, let me add a couple prosecutorial points. First, I, I agree with everything uh, everyone's saying, and I think we really it 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 gets it it hits it on the target, which is on the one hand we do ha- yes, it's never happened before, but it's the most grievous assault on democracy ever. Can the legal system? be silent about it just because of the political repercussions all true. Yes, it's a clean case, and but big enough to be righteous, especially with all the, it, there's nothing trivial about all the uh, concealing behavior. For prosecutors, though, they're, they're going to be thinking um, uh, of a couple things. Everything involving January 6th has at least the potential complications of First Amendment defenses every time we have tiptoed up to this area. They, and you could expect it here. This is just political speech. I'll be, I'll be with you at the ellipse. It, you know, et cetera. And then second, we do have this bombardment of uh, different kinds of plots and schemes that the January Sixth Committee has very effectively displayed, and that paint an overall large tableau of corruption, contempt for democracy, et cetera. But for the DOJ, it has to resolve into individual charges and the and the, the particular ones, and there are, I think, seven or so in play where you really have to, can we prove each element beyond um, a reasonable doubt, et cetera. I want to go from there and pick up, though, what Charlie was saying. We It's, we're, it's become kind of a bromine now that everyone's saying, oh, no person can be above the law if other people did um, the same conduct. I would be in prison by now. I think several things that we've said just in the last 15 minutes suggest otherwise. And I just want to put that to you. For example, do you need, in the case of Donald Trump, to have even beyond, beyond a reasonable doubt. Must it be bulletproof on the concern that don't shoot at the king if you can't hit him? What about the um, prospect, uh, if you can't kill him, sorry. What about the prospect of um, getting him out of office, something you wouldn't normally think about? You know, is there a final role for the political system and the president? So A, isn't it true that it's just not accurate to, to suggest this is, you know, like any other violation. And, uh, and in particular, how, if that is true, how does it play out? How, what's the extra layer of consideration? Uh, knowing Garland, uh, I, they, it will come at the end, not it won't, you know, but, but what part of the end will change this from a normal case of either documents or, you know, whatever the charges are. Thoughts? Let me just, one question you asked, the, the, the role of the president, this, the current president, um, which I don't think he'll have any. There are, you know, there are... Um, zero. He's zero. And I think that would be the case in almost every previous administration. I, the, the AGI worked for Eric Holder. 
in a case like this, we might tell the president, either he might tell the president what he had decided to do, um, they had a very close relationship, or we might tell the White House right before something was announced. I think in this case, the president and the attorney general don't really have a personal relationship. There's no reason they'd be talking about this. Um, and I think so they could say they've never talked about it, they won't. DOJ is going to do what it wants to do, completely independent of the White House, despite all the claims that this is political. Tragic hero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all on his shoulders. That's the that's that's the job. <laughs> that's what you sign up for. Um, but no, I, I think um, I think you very much have to to entertain all of those questions, and those are questions that the line prosecutors they're not they they can't really think about. They have to think about can you win the case or not. Merrick Garland. And Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, but but mostly Garland, have to really weigh all those other considerations. And I do suspect they very much will see this as a you for legal reasons. You can only bring this case if you're going to win because you don't want to set bad precedents that will affect further cases down the road. But really, mainly for political reasons, you bring this case. It, Even it, a hung jury could be disastrous. A, a hung jury and and. There are practical ways when you you could see this play out. I think it it does play out on whether it, it plays out most especially on how on whether to bring the January sixth case or not. I think it plays out in your decision on venue wh whether to bring this these charges in um, Florida or DC. Everyone know what on that on They're they're going to have a choice, and uh, there are very good legal reasons why you would argue to bring the case in DC. The prosecutors there, the court has more experience dealing with these type of cases, national security cases, than than Florida does. But there are, you know, I think they will look and see they're more likely to win a conviction in D.C. And the there jury. will be people that argue that's an inappropriate consideration. But the department does that all the time in other cases. They bring national security cases in the Eastern District of Virginia because they think they get better juries there. There's no reason it would be inappropriate to do so here. And I think that's the kind of sort of where you have to, to be a little more political, not partisan political, but a little more political thinking about the, the effect of your decisions on the 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 health of the of the country and the health of democracy in making these sorts of determinations. Well, Harry, you sort of touched on on, on one of the, the elephants in the room, and there are so many, um, including the, the the failure of uh, the U.S. Senate to actually take the the action that would have saved us from all of this. I, I find it interesting, you know, reading about you know Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, agonizing about uh, whether he was going to do the right thing. And, of course, Mitch came back to his default setting and didn't. Um, but, you know, you look back on all of the other institutions, all of the other guardrails that did not hold. And that's why I, I said, you know, democracy is too important to be left to the lawyers or the prosecutors, but that's what we're left with at, at, at this point. So, um, you know, don't forget that 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 really extraordinary moment when, our Congress did have the ability to to hold him accountable and chose not to. And let me answer uh, and answer a question you didn't ask. Um, another factor that has to weigh on everyone's mind, including Merrick Garland's, is the fact that the, the, the former president is issuing not so veiled threats of, uh, of violence if if they hold him legally accountable. Uh, you have the former acting attorney general going on, I think, a Newsmax show saying there would be chaos and anarchy if Donald Trump was in, indicted. I mean, these are. Um, maybe at one level you could say this is incitement, but there's no question about it. It is a threat. It is intended to be a threat uh, to uh, the Department of Justice. And in some ways, I think that also forces their hand mm -hmm. because the Department of Justice cannot allow itself to be intimidated or bullied in this particular way. The threat of violence cannot trump the rule of law. So that, that's a crucial part of the dynamic at this point, I think, or it ought to be. And it's an example, he so frequently acts either on his own political instincts, such as they are, and I guess they're not terrible, right? He was president, or just to get past the next 24 hours. But as lawyers, it looks so self-defeating, so counterproductive. Uh, you know, when the crucible of the legal system comes in, will he be um, toast? But it's a good example. We might have thought after 20, you know, it, he would sort of go away. And he redoubles, redoubles, redoubles. And you're right. I mean, one of the things, and this is a typical thing for the department to consider, you have a brazen, unrepentant defendant who is, in fact, if you think about general deterrence, now this is not a general event, but nevertheless, you think about what message is, is given by, by inaction here, 
you know, about equal justice, about democracy, and it's it's completely um, noxious for the for the rule of law in the country. You know, uh, no, no, please go ahead. So, like, when we were talking about no one being above the law, I think everybody refers to Watergate, and so I'm listening to everyone speak, and I'm thinking about Watergate again, and that was not a case of nobody being above the law because the Justice Department never weighed in on Richard Nixon. And so I think that we've also misread that moment in saying that we've never had a president above the law. We actually did. The Justice Department did not need to weigh in because it was the Republican Party that vanquished Richard Nixon. Keep in mind, he was pardoned. So he was never really investigated by the Justice Department. They never had to decide whether or not to bring charges against Richard Nixon. They totally got off the hook. Like Ed Levy, hero to the department, wonderful person, I'm sure. His job was to basically come in and be a really um, inspiring bureaucrat to come in and say, what new rules do we need so this can't happen again? I'd like to make some new rules. He did not have to make this kind of choice. In fact, prosecutors, lawyers did not have to think about this at all because Nixon was pardoned. And so this, it remained a completely political question to Charlie's point earlier. And because it remained a completely political question, what will the Republicans do? It wasn't going to rip the country apart like this is ripping the country apart. And they got lucky because Nixon himself decided to go away quietly. He was still pretty popular during Watergate. Like you look at the polling, 30% popularity, 40% popularity at times. He wasn't hated by every American. But he chose, again, not to use his position as microphone as the president to say, I'm not going away. And if you try to make me Republicans, I'm going to have all of my voters come out and, and attack you. T totally agree. I want to I want to slightly disagree with one thing you said. It's, it's something you hear a lot, which is that this decision will rip the, the country apart. Um, and I'm, in some ways, it's not exactly what you said, but I, I the country is ripped apart. I think the just I, I, I hope that in making this determination, he won't weigh the political costs and that it's going to be controversial and Republicans are going to be mad and there might be you know, there might be violence. That is a feature of public life now. That is a feature of our political system, whether Donald Trump is indicted or not. It's going to be a feature of our political system when he runs. And and so the decision that he makes is not going to do is not going to going to heighten the divisions in our in our country any more than they already exist. And so you, one, have to do the right thing based on the, the facts and based on the law and based on whether you can sustain the, the, the case. But then I also think there's a case to be made that the, the way you start to put the country back together is to isolate and, and neutralize the virus that has infected this. It doesn't make the entire virus in the Republican Party go away, but if you can take the leading cause of it out of the picture, Maybe it helps start down that path. I completely agree. Um, and I want to go back to Watergate for a second, because remember, when Ford pardoned Nixon, uh, it was there, there were calls for Ford's impeachment. Ford arguably lost the 1980 election as a result. And yet, I think there has been a historical verdict in his favor. I think by and large, notwithstanding all the opposition, people think he acted for the best interest of the country, and it probably was for the best interest of the, the country. And that is about as much of sort of common law as we have here. So that's the sort of lady and tiger uh, terrible position for, for Garland. There may in fact be a decision that two, three, five years down the line will be understood, in fact, to have begun a reconciliation, uh, putting the country back on some kind of track. And, you know, it's not... And, and maybe, maybe not. And maybe not, <laughs> exactly. Um, now, I wonder... Let's move to it for a minute. Even I'm the prosecutor on the panel. I certainly have opinions here. But I wonder if others do, too. A, little, a, a couple of sort of nitty-gritty... Uh, aspects. You've pointed out that Mar-a-Lago could be much closer to bring to actual uh, charging. January 6th, so much to develop. Do you see in... Uh, who, are the, who are the people that you think the department either is already or is planning to sort of put pressure on uh, and to potentially cooperate 
against no. the former president and what are their prospects? His lawyers. I, we, ha we have the department, I believe this has been reported. Finger, finger, fingers crossed. Do you need to make a phone call? Hold <laughs> <laughs> <Well done>. on. <laughs> Where's my editor? Yeah, all right. but, in the know, Washington the, Post? The, yeah. <laughs> exactly. so, sorry, Katie. Someone, sorry. as long as it's already out. Yeah. <laughs> Called Devlin. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, the, the, Trump's lawyers, um, one, wrote an attestation saying, we think we've given you everything you need. And then another one, you know, Evan Corcoran wrote the document and Christina Bob signed it. And so what they've done is they have falsely, they themselves have falsely represented Christina Moore, because it's her name on the paper, to the federal government, that everything was handed over. And so I think that in a case like this, prosecutors would see that and say, that's an in. We can apply tremendous amounts of pressure on those people because they are the ones who did something wrong and we have them, we kind of have them dead to rights. But Trump is always so tricky. Do people in Trump world ever flip? We have one person who's done it. Didn't work out great for him, right? I mean, like, I mean, he's, he's on TV a lot, but like, other yeah. than that, like, <laughs> it, it didn't really, and it also did not affect things. It did not change. <laughs> Um, the outcome for Donald Trump because it was not enough to have him testifying against, to have, to have um, Cohen testifying against Donald Trump. So one, people in Trump world don't often flip. So applying that pressure, who knows what you're going to get. And two, when people in Trump's orbit are brought in to speak to investigators or to a grand jury, they then walk out the door and tell everybody in the world what just happened, which is really devastating for the Department of Justice's investigation. It makes it really complicated for them. So even though I think that that's where they would go, there are a lot of a lot more considerations than in a normal case. I want to add just one thing to serve up to, to you guys as well. So it's the the lawyers, but also um, w what came up not just in June, but we now know uh, Pat Philbin, who's a definite truth teller and a, and a, a lawyer of great integrity, testified in the grand jury, and I think it's been publicly reported. In any event, I can't talk out of school. I'm not in school, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, he said that Mark Meadows told him that all we have were a, a dozen boxes with just newspaper clippings. You know, that's screamingly false, right, in, uh, before anybody even knows it. Now, Meadows apparently is saying, well, I, I just took the word of, and I, although it's been cryptic, I, I think it has to be the, the former president. So there are ways in which the legal lines also work in inculpatory uh, possibilities, and especially both Cipollone and Philbin testified in the grand jury. And we've also, you know, we've seen others of the sort of grown-up lawyers uh, sort of part company from the the clown car that uh, of of lawyers that have otherwise represented him. Sorry, go ahead. Um, I I think um, Katie's right. You would. They definitely want to talk to the lawyers in the Mar-a-Lago case. The other people around the Trump, like Tom Fitton, who is not a lawyer, will have no privilege claims and apparently is the one that came up with this bozo theory that he didn't have to return any of the documents because he misinterpreted a case that Judicial Watch was a party to. Um, and then if it were me, given everything we've discussed about the threats that Donald Trump poses to the country, I would think it argues for giving immunity to everyone around him, even people like Mark Meadows, who even maybe Mark, have that's, their... That's who, a concrete question. Who, Give immunity to Meadows? Anyone who, who has... If they ha even if they have their own criminal liability, if they can help you make the case against Donald Trump, if you need it, if you don't need Meadows to make the case, then you don't. You consider whether he's a target as well. But if you need the evidence, I would... I would immunize basically everyone around him. And let me just make another prosecutor's point. This Meadows is the perfect example. He knows everything, but he would the, the normal discussion in a normal case in the Department of Justice would be he's too high to give immunity to. You've got to put charge him and make him cooperate. That's a normal case. In because of what Matt says, I think they could very seriously consider giving him immunity and he's you know, he's the keeper of the keys, I think. Sorry. Well, this is more of a question. Um, to, to Katie's point about that, that really people don't flip. We've only had Michael Cohen who, who flipped. And I guess the question is whether or not they've really been tested yet. We're now moving into the phase where you're dealing with federal grand juries. 
and you know federal judges who are really holding their feet to the fire. And you know, anytime you're you're dealing with trying to break up an organized crime family, it's only at the point where you really squeeze, you know, the consigliere's really hard to get them to squeeze. And it's only in the last, it feels like the last few months and weeks that you had uh, people like Mark Meadows who are facing, you know, not just a congressional subpoena, which they can kind of laugh off and blow off because, you know, big deal, but now the possibility of federal grand juries, the possibility of, you know, perjuring themselves to a federal grand jury, the stakes are much higher. And I know you're probably going to get to it, but I want to wallow in the, just the the joy of the special master Um, (laughs) here. um, Donald Trump's choice to be special master. And Judge Deary um, is really now, you know, telling the lawyers, put up or shut up. I mean, um, also just reminding us of something we've been saying for years now. It's a very different world to be on Twitter or on Truth Social um, than in front of a federal judge. And so he's basically saying, okay, you've been saying these things uh, on social media. Uh, I want you to say, you know, you know, tell me uh, on the record in my court and tell me by Friday. Um, which strikes me is that, okay, the rules are changing now. The stakes are changing now. And so we haven't had anybody flip. But is, does, is it early days on all of this? But one thing to think about is this is where the two separate cases can interact with each other because a lot of the people are overlapping And potentially players. the committee, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And the committee, they're, they're you know, both witnesses or subjects in January. Mark Meadows is a classic example in both the January 6th investigation and the Mar-a-Lago investigation. And so if you have criminal liability in one, you might trade away that criminal liability for, for cooperation on both. And so as, the, as both cases proceed... I think there is a chance that you see, and it's not just for the, thi- the things we think about, but w- the, the one thing that Trump's orbit has shown is that when they're under investigation, they obstruct justice. They lie to investigators. That was ultimately the story of the Mueller investigation. The charges they brought were people that, that tried to obstruct it's the investigation. Always the it's, al- it's always the story, and it's likely to be one of the stories here that we see develop over the few months. So, so you could have witnesses in one case who are key to unlocking secrets in the others. What about, so including when you talk about the others, there's um, many others. What the, you know, we have Fulton County, we have the New York AG case, we have maybe the New York DA case. Do you see these, again, sticking within the mindset of Merrick Garland, are they things to try to ignore and blinker out? Are, there, are they things to try to you know, cooperate with? Is there risk of kind of getting their feet crossed in the field? What about all these other cases out there that are, seem to be coming to fruition more quickly? And, and again, I guess I would also ask, so does S- SDNY, will it make an independent choice or is it all, you know? It's a great question. Simple, I'll just, yeah. I'll, they will yeah. want to make an independent right. choice. Okay, okay. The sovereign <laughs> district. Yeah, there, there, we'll there will be different, there, there will be different the opinion ch- on that question. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only department. choice they're making is whether or not to take a referral, right. you know, yeah. which is, which uh, generally you just say yes, whether or not that becomes. Well, like and then whether to bring the, oh, oh, you think and immediately the investigation itself will immediately be consolidated? You mean the referral from Tish James. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. In other words, you think that the case, if they take it, will be worked in D.C.? I think they'll work it. I think it just depends on what she refers. Yeah. They will examine it, and they will determine whether or not this is a standalone thing. Keep in mind, she's looking yeah. at activity that happened many, many years ago. Yeah. She is not looking at activity that happened while he was the president of the United States, per se. You know, she's, she's looking at his financial transactions. Yeah. And Although not through. Act, to but through, but yeah. through, but like not, not necessarily his presidency. So who, it, it's unclear. I think if it's a valid referral, they would take it. I think it's hard to say no to a valid referral because then what are you saying? Like, well, because it is Donald Trump, we can't take the referral right. because it's too complicated. You have to. But then it's just a matter of how, who investigates it. And frankly, I mean, this is so technical, but if you're looking at a financial right. fraud case, you want it to be SDNY. Those prosecutors have much more experience looking at Wall Street that we can all fight about whether or not they did a good job during the financial crisis. Um, they have a lot more experience looking at complex yeah. financial fraud than some of our friends in Washington, D.C. Jari, you were going to say something? Um, well, I, I think... Um, so my sense from this week, when, when you mentioned Tish James, I, I wonder if you guys agree. We've been sort of saying this you know, since when? Access Hollywood? But it feels, it really does feel to a lot of people, and I think I'm among them, that 
they, it, we are at the beginning of something new. There has been a turning of the tide. There is a kind of reckoning, and you know, the escape artist doesn't. It is looking really, really hard pressed to escape. Do you agree, or is that sort of premature? The sense that that um, comeuppance is actually, you know, beginning to unroll in real time. It feels like wish casting at the moment. Um, well, look, I, I, the confession, we all suffer from the PTSD of you know all of those moments right. we access Hollywood. Remember what we thought was going to happen on January 7th? Remember what the, what the world was like, the complete vindication of everyone who said that Trump was a danger and all the Republicans who were quitting the cabinet and giving speeches on the floor, Kevin McCarthy, that lasted about five minutes. There are also some... Uh, some sort of viral, um, you know, loops that, are, that have been put together of all the people, the talking heads on cable television, nobody here, I don't think, um, saying, you know, the walls are closing in on Donald Trump, the walls are closing in. I mean, this has been going on for six years. So maybe, but the one thing that I can confidently say is that there's no indication that the Republican Party is uh, breaking with him on, on all of this. Yeah, so that, not, and not, this brings up something so yeah. interesting to me because the, you know, the idea that it was once an inquiry and um, questions about Donald Trump because the Republicans haven't broken away from him, because he's in some ways only gained power, that in, in many ways it's so hard to separate this scrutiny of Donald Trump from scrutiny of Republicans in general. And the reason why I think that's important is because, one, and I say this as somebody who has many Republicans in my family, mm -hmm. as I think we actually all do, of course, is that once this this benefits Donald Trump so much for us as the public, us in the media, prosecutors in the Justice Department, to for it to be tricky for us to separate scrutiny of him from scrutiny of the party. It really helps him because nobody wants in the United States of America to say one of its own political parties is rotten, needs to be vanquished, needs to be routed, needs to be shut down because that's not... That's not the way the country was designed. That is, an, that is another way of saying the democratic experiment has failed. And we don't want to say that. So by, by twinning himself with the party and by the party not extricating itself from him, it helps him so much because who here in this room wants to sit and say, democracy does not work anymore. We have a completely failed party. You do. Yeah, well, Charlie that was your book. Yeah. So, so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. and Char Charlie will be signing books after that. <laughs> so... I do think it's the beginning of the end of Trump, not Trumpism. Um, and I don't believe that because of the New York case, the January 6th case, or the Georgia case. I believe it only because of the Mar-a-Lago case, where I think he will be indicted. I think he will be convicted. Um, and I know he's a 76-year-old first-time offender, but I think the <laughs> convicted offender. But I think if you look at other cases where people have been convicted of mishandling of classified information and obstruction, which I think he's likely to be in both, they go to jail. And So you see him going to jail? I, 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 it's a, who knows how it will play out, but if you look at this through the lens of previous cases with this fact set, those defendants get jailed unless, unless they plead guilty. And so if he wants to plead guilty and bargain down to no jail, maybe. Like but that seems, that seems Yeah, like Petraeus, exactly. But that seems unlikely that he's ever going to get Jeez, into it. Matt, from, from your lips to God's yeah, ears. That, 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 <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, I, I come back to the thing I started this with, which is I think that the Mar-a-Lago case is a gift to the department and a gift to the country, and the way to take him out of the picture, but Trumpism will go on for some time. Can, can I just pick up on something that Katie said, because it sort of loops around what we were talking about with Watergate and the contrast with Watergate, that, that in Watergate, the democratic process worked out. It was, it was healthy. That we no longer have that kind of healthy process. We also have a very, very different media information ecosystem. And I strongly believe that that if uh, Richard Nixon had the media ecosystem that we have right now, that he would have survived. Mm -hmm. If the Republican Party would have stuck with him, if he would have had Fox News and all of the you know all of the acolytes, that that would have played out very, very differently. So um, yes, that we are in a very, very different world in Watergate. And I just want to say one thing about Katie: the sort of Mobius strip of politics and law that unavoidably, you know, we're we're um, uh, looking at, which is it, you know, it may be. This is sort of back to uh, 
Garland as, as tragic figure and trying to protect. It does seem to me, and I'm really out of my uh, depth here, but Trump, it's interesting and, and you know, also despicable, but he, he is going more and more extreme where, you know, the QAnon pins, the, the fomenting of violence, and it does strike me that it, you know, that, that's possible the kind of move that makes, notwithstanding his personal charisma, uh, makes the, a sort of thr- uh, cent- pretty big center of the country, uh, you know, be able to, to say we, we just can't countenance this. He's, he's really, it seems to be changing against all that. And, and I just want to, one other thing is this James suit is no um, walk in the park. I think he's got to settle. I just can't see his going to trial. I can't see his testifying. She's got a lot of cars. She is, I think, the charges that she's, you know, really sort of uh, almost politically after him. I understand those, but that's that's the cards that he's now been dealt. And I think that she's going to exact very serious settlements. It's not it doesn't put him in an orange jumpsuit, but it it really potentially annihilates the Trump brand, and that's that's pretty close. No, you're right. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm a little bit obsessed about thinking about what Katie said about Merrick Garland being this Shakespearean, Shakespearean. If you uh, take nothing but, away from this, no, panel. no, 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 no. But, 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 Kate, Katie. So, which one is he? Is, is he? Is he Hamlet, or is he? Or is he King Lear, or Macbeth, or is he? Or, because, because it it ends badly for all of them. It's so Henry the Fourth. Henry, Henry the Fourth. Henry the Fourth. Part Henry three. The, Henry the Fourth. Oh. Okay. Oh. I was thinking of him as kind of Cromwell in, you know, the Hillary oh, Man. Hillary Mantle just yeah. passed away. Cat right? Cassie is. Oh, no, it's bad. Oh, my. Okay. Brutus, Brutus. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> all right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we'll tour the five types of tequila in under two minutes. Time is also important when it comes to tequila because each type is classified according to the length of time it is aged. The longer it's aged, the deeper the flavors and smoother the taste. The five types of tequila from least aged to most aged, are Blanco, Hoven, Reposado, Anejo, and Extra Anejo. Blanco, or silver, is the youngest and purest form of the tequilas. It has the most authentic taste of the agave plant. It contains no flavoring agents and it can be bottled immediately or it can be aged up to two months. Blanco tasting notes include a little bit of citrus and a little bit of spice. Hoven, which means young, is also known as gold tequila. Fittingly, it derives its name from the color imparted from extracts that are added to change the flavor and the hue. Hoven tasting notes are also citrus and spicy, but they're a little sweeter than Blanco. Reposado, which means rested, is aged in oak for 2 to 12 months, giving it time to become a pale golden color and pick up some flavors from the oak. Reposado tasting notes are caramel and honey, but they can also include hints of vanilla, cinnamon, or chocolate depending on how long it has been aged. Anejo, meaning aged, spends anywhere from one to three years aging in oak, giving it a smoother, darker, and sweeter taste. Anejo tasting notes are caramelized and sugary smooth without the sharpness of a Blanco. And last, but certainly not the least aged, there is extra Anejo, which is aged longer than three years, giving it a beautiful dark amber color. Extra Anejo's tasting notes are rich with nuts, caramel, fruit, and spice. So, if you're aged 21 years or longer, stop into your local Total Wine and more for a huge selection of tequilas that are aged and priced to perfection. So find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine and more. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and more for today's A Spirited Debate. If anyone would like to ask a question, please do. There are microphones so please. Yes, thank you. It's been fascinating. Let's assume he does uh, get charged. Are you really that confident he'll be convicted? Because I go back to your comment that a hung jury would be a disaster. That to me is such a huge risk here, given that maybe 15% of this country would not convict him, vote to convict him. I don't care what the charges, how clear they were. 
If how, they, how are you confident that one of those people won't be on a jury? I think they'll bring the case in D.C. And It's as simple as that. I think if you brought it in Florida, you take the chance that you're going to get someone on the jury that's just a Trump dead-ender that will never vote to uh, convict no matter what. The chances don't go disappear in D.C., but they go down dramatically. And you do screen them out, those people, and it's not... The, the, the DOJ has now come to the age of sophisticated jury inquiry and consultants in these big cases, and it's unlikely that a you know, total dyed-in-the-wool Trump, Trumpite has no indications. There will be challenges, and, you know... We did have an example. Um, is it Manafort, where you know a, a total Trumpy juror? But there could also just be jurors who don't like Donald Trump, but think that it's not worth tearing apart the country to convict this man. So it's not. I mean, I don't think this is. is a, I don't think yeah, this is a sure thing. He's, he's just so, so risky. Guilty. So I think that would be the number one thing. <laughs> this, yeah. See, I got. I got. I, that was Harry's opinion. Right. That was not my opinion yeah. as a journalist at the New York Times. Okay, mm. keep going. <laughs> Uh, hi. Um, I was kind of thinking, uh, so like uh, indicting he like former heads of state like in other countries, like this is like a normal thing in democracy. Like we've seen it with like the French, like the former French president. We've seen it with the Italian president. We've seen it with the South Korean president. This is Israel. Like yeah. Israel, this is new for the United States. Like this hasn't happened before. So like, what's going to happen to democracy if he isn't indicted and if we don't follow the laws the way we're supposed to? Yeah, you're right, and it certainly takes the shine off of American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism is built on this idea that we don't have to do what happened in Israel and France because our democracy works. Our founders knew what they were doing, and our system is better. So suddenly, we're not better. See what it and how? And so, how then do we say we should run the world? How do we then say we should be making these foreign policy decisions that we know better? I mean, it really is not just a matter of rule of law question. It, there is there are so many bigger consequences in terms of what it means to be an American that we will have to face. That's a fantastic point. I just want to say. I just admired that as a host. Sorry, go ahead. Hi there. Um, so whether Trump is prosecuted or not or convicted or not, I think the threat of violence is just so real. And on the one hand, it just scares, it just scares the heck out of me. On the other hand, I think, what are we afraid of? Are we afraid that law enforcement or our National Guard will not, will not back us, will not stand up for us? I, I just want to know what your opinions are because... Let me take this one I, as a prosecutor because we've got a, a, a run of profanity in each of the last thing. Lock them the fuck up. You can do it. It's not that hard. No, that, that's, ex that's exactly right. Charlie made the point earlier you, you can't be bullied by threats of violence. And if there are threats of violence, you treat them the way we treated the people who stormed the Capitol. And we throw had, them all in jail. We've had very violent periods before in the history of the country yeah. as well. And not that we want them to see them happen again. But, I mean, I would say the first march across the Pettus Bridge. What was happening to protesters in the South, you know, who were desperate to end Jim Crow. We've had terrible, terrible moments of violent clashes as people tried to figure out what it meant to have a functioning American society in a democracy that included everyone. No, you've asked exactly the right question. It's, it's, at, at some point, if you stand up to it, if you don't blink, you might find out that it is, it is, it, it might be, it might be messy, too. but it's not a civil war. Thank you. Hi. Um, uh, Barb McQuaid made a comment in a, in a panel. She said that when she went to DOJ prosecutor school, mm -hmm. they taught her that federal prosecutors generally don't lose based on the evidence. They lose because the cases are so complicated that the jury's eyes glaze over and they can't get the conviction, even though they have the evidence. So I saw this thing where this guy, Jim Warden, uh, talked about this RICO case for this whole uh, January 6th thing with the insurrection and the money laundering and the conspiracy. And it looks really good, but then I've, based on what you're saying, I'm like, yeah, and the DOJ knows how to do RICO, but man, that's really, you know, that's all in. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it... But they got all this video to be able to tell the story, to, to make it a dramatic narrative, but I'll, I'll defer. Yeah, they're going to have to call Liz Cheney and get that video. No, look, it's a... 
it is a, a great point. It's another reason for Matt's position of Mar-a-Lago. I'll just say that I'm going back to the AG, the New York AG's um, uh, civil case. In general, as paper cases go, and they go for months, and your eyes glaze over, and you have experts, the ability here to basically take, when you're trying to prove fraud on paper, two valuations of the same thing and put them in front of a jury. He wants lower taxes. They're worth ten thousand. He wants higher. Is for a paper case, pretty you know, pretty much of a gift. And then there are the people from SDNY who think they can prove any paper case ever, except for Lehman Brothers. Except for Lehman. <laughs> Last question. Help, yeah. Thank you. We generally talk, or frequently talk about Trumpism being a cult. We talk about autocracies, and when you behead the autocracy or you cut off the head of the cult, the cult dies, but you're talking about that even if we do that, Trumpism is gonna last for a long time. Why do you see it being different in this case? Um, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I called it Trumpism. The better way to, to think about it is the kind of problems in the Republican Party, the, you know, the, the fact that they have com been, become completely disconnected from the truth and have built a media ecosystem that allows them to, to stay disconnected from the truth. That's gonna continue. However, there is no one else in the party like Trump. There are a lot of wannabe Trumps who are Trump without the charisma. You know, Ron DeSantis doesn't have Trump's charisma. Pompeo, all of them. So they will be, there will be noxious politicians who, uh, who demagogue and lie to voters, but there aren't a lot of other obvious candidates who, who, who have the ability to bring 20,000 people to a rally and then turn them and send them to storm the Capitol. That hopefully... I don't, want to, I don't want to seem naive and say it goes away, but it certainly lessens without him at the top. That's but it, it's a problem I, of minority rule, though, okay, really, isn't it? But it's that's also that's like all a, true. But I yeah. see it as a politics yeah. of abandonment, too, though, because I grew up in Vermont. All I see in Vermont are Trump flags and Bernie flags in the year 2022. I don't know that they... I don't know that anybody in that state knows that Joe Biden's the president. It's, <laughs> but no, but, but, this, but this, was a pro, this was a problem that began, I think, in the 90s, where you saw a party that had always represented labor and it always represented working people and always tried to anyway. <laughs> but the Democrats abandoned huge swaths of the country as they became technocrats, as they wanted to also become a party that represented moneyed interests, which the Republicans had much more, been much more successful at. So now you have two parties that have essentially abandoned huge parts of an America that I am part of. My dad worked in a factory my entire life until that factory shut down and he found another one, another one, because they kept shutting down. Who is representing these people? Because most of the country does not look like Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Mike Bloomberg. Most of the country looks like my dad and no one represents him. So Trumpism is gonna stay as long as Trumpism claims to, whether or not it does, claims to represent a huge number of people in the United States of America that I'm so sorry, most Democrats do not care about and most Republicans do not care about. I, I, I know we're running out of time, but, but this is such an important question. And you know, two things can be true at the same time. That Donald Trump is a unique existential threat. I mean, he is a unique personality. On the other hand, he has exploited a pre-existing dysfunction in this country that Katie just, just described. All of the incentive structures have changed. The media ecosystem has, has changed. You have these wannabes who are, you know, pushing sort of the, you know, cruelty is the point politics, you know, the, the, that's, we don't actually solve problems. We just simply, you know, troll and trigger the libs. That's going to continue for a long time. But, you know, um, and, and of course, we do have these kinds of divisions. So, yes, if Donald Trump disappeared tomorrow, our democracy does not heal itself. The divisions do not heal itself. It's, it's going to be a fight for a very, very long time. But you solve the problems you can. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Please join me in thanking this fantastic panel. Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Texas Tribute. There you have it, our live Austin panel into the investigations swirling around Donald Trump and his circle. Thank you very much to Charlie, Matt, and Katie. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. Or follow us on Twitter, 
at Talking Feds Pod. You can also subscribe to us and get a lot of extra content on the Patreon site, patreon.com slash talkingfeds. In an effort to make Talking Feds a better listening experience for everyone, we don't follow a typical advertising business and we have very few commercials you may have noticed. So if you'd like to support the show, you can subscribe there and there's a lot that comes with it. You can go to Patreon and see what we have coming and decide if you might like to sign up. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com contact whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. And don't forget to tune in next week for our Supreme Court panel discussion, also recorded live at the Texas Tribune Festival. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, Izzy Brantley, and David Emmett. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.